It is an epic story that is set in the war-torn, poverty-stricken streets of 19th century France. It's a story that chronicles the redemptive journey of a man by the name of Jean Valjean. After 19 years of being in prison because of murder, inmate number 24601 receives his parole papers. When he understands that these parole papers will always mark him as a social outcast, Jean Valjean breaks parole. He runs for his life and he is relentlessly searched by the French officer Javert. One night while Jean Valjean is running, he comes and seeks the safe shelter from a benevolent bishop. This hardened criminal repays the generosity of this priest by stealing some of the sacred silver and making his way into the dark night. Some other officers apprehend Jean Valjean. They bring him back to the bishop and the bishop shocks this criminal by lying to the police. For the priest simply says, these gifts were of silver were uh, intended for this man. In fact, he left without taking all the things that I had intended to give him. This single act of magnificent mercy melted the heart of this hardened criminal. And that night, this man decided to live a different life because of the mercy that had been displayed for him. Such is the beginning of Victor Hugo's novel that's commonly called Les Mis. One act of magnificent mercy can change the course of a man's life. Victor Hugo was not the first one to ever come up with that idea. No, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, spoke something of that statement in the greatest sermon ever preached. Today, we continue our sermon series entitled The Good Life, whereby we examine the Sermon on the Mount. This morning, I invite you to take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll read verse 7. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 5, we will read verse 7. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Heavenly Father, we stand before you, and I am a dying man speaking to dying people, and you've given me the word unto salvation. So help me this day to preach. In Jesus' name, I ask it. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I want to submit to you that God's mercy towards us motivates mercy from us. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has an uncanny ability to be able to interconnect the eight Beatitudes. I think that the first beatitude is connected to the fifth beatitude, the second is connected to the sixth, the third is connected to the seventh, and the fourth is connected to the eighth. Let me give you the example before us this morning. Jesus said in the first beatitude, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is a person who comes to God as a spiritual beggar. 
For you and I are bankrupt before the Lord. There's nothing we can do to earn our own salvation. We come to him on bended knee with head downcast, eyes closed, arms outstretched, hands open heavenward, simply begging for any blessing of the Lord. And when God gives us mercy, then we realize that God's mercy towards us motivates mercy from us. So Jesus says in our fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The word mercy literally means sympathy, compassion, pity. It is to help the helpless. It is sovereign sympathy that leads to service. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the people who have been helped by the Lord. Blessed are the people who have received sovereign sympathy. Whenever the understanding of mercy is given in the Bible, it always includes not only attitude, but also action. Action always accompanies the attitude of mercy. It is a demeanor that influences our doings. It is a characteristic that must be seen in our conduct. This is how God acts towards us. For in Deuteronomy chapter 4, we are told, don't you know that your God is merciful? For he will not abandon you, he will not destroy you, nor will he forget the covenant he made with your forefathers. Do you see how his characteristics influences his conduct? And this God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, who is the same God of the Old Testament as in the New Testament, we read in Ephesians chapter 2 that this God is merciful, for he is rich in mercy. He has made us alive in Christ Jesus. Do you see how his characteristic of mercy is influenced by his conduct? Who he is influences what he does. And if this is true of God, it must also be true of God's people. For if we are called to be merciful, it must not only influence and impact our attitude, but it must also influence our actions. So once again, in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord says to the Israelites, when you go into the promised land, and there is a poor brother among you, do not be tight-fisted or hard-hearted. Now, why would God say that? Well, God knows our propensity to be tight-fisted and hard-hearted. But he also knows that the Israelites are living in a land that has houses they did not build. They're eating of a vineyard that they did not plant. They're drinking water from cisterns that they did not dig. See, God had been merciful to them, so God's mercy towards them must motivate mercy from them. So he says, if you see a brother in need, help the helpless. Because of sovereign sympathy towards you, it leads you unto service unto your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, this is a major point of the preaching of the Messiah. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25 that one day all people will stand in front of him and he will separate the sheep and the goats. The good guys from the bad guys. Those on his right are the righteous. They're identified as sheep. Those on the left are the wicked. They're identified as uh, goats. And Jesus says that the distinction between being on the right or on the left has a lot to do with mercy. He gives the same criteria. He will say to the people on his right, I was 
hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And those on his right will say, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked? Or when were you ever sick or in prison? And Jesus will say, when you have been merciful to the least of these, you've done it unto me. And using the very same criteria, Jesus says to the wicked ones on his left, I was hungry and you did not give me something to eat. I was thirsty and you did not give me something to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me in. I was in need of clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick, and you did not look after me. I was in prison, and you did not come and visit me. And those on the left, those who thought they were the good guys, but ended up being the bad guys, they say to the Lord, Lord, when do we ever see you in that plight? For certainly, if we would have seen you in need, we would have responded graciously and mercifully. When did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or naked or a stranger or sick or in prison? And Jesus says, when you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it unto me. It seems that God is consistent in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. He demands the attitude of mercy, and he also demands the action of mercy. One day, a hotshot lawyer came up to Jesus, and the lawyer said, um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm sure this lawyer was fresh out of law school, just passed the bar exam. And he said unto the Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, ironically, takes the lawyer back to the law. What's in it? How do you read it? Jesus said. And maybe the lawyer had heard Jesus speak on this subject before, or maybe he was just rather astute. He said unto the Lord, all of the Old Testament can be summed up in two statements. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, not only did you pass the bar exam, but you're also a pretty good theologian. You do this, and you will live. The expert lawyer thought he knew what it was to love God. He said to himself, I've got that one. I know what it is to love God with all the fiber inside of me, all the stuff in my stuffing. I know what it is to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But loving neighbor, I've got a question about that. In essence, his question is, Jesus, to whom do I need to show mercy? Certainly, you're not expecting me to be merciful to everyone, so will you please help me to draw the lines of telling me who is my neighbor, who's not my neighbor, who's in bounds, who's out of bounds, who must I show mercy towards? And Jesus, who was the best at coming up with stories and spinning them off the cuff, said, one day there was a Jewish man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell into the hands of robbers. They were a bunch of thugs. They beat him. They stripped him. They robbed him. They left him half dead in the middle of the street. But a few moments later, a Jewish rabbi came walking down the street. Now, you would think this would be good news for the poor fellow who's lying there half dead, beaten and bloody in the middle of town. You would think this would be a good idea because if anybody would stop to help someone in need, it has to be a preacher, right? It has to be a priest. But Jesus in his story says that the Jewish priest does not help the Jewish man that's lying there half dead in the, on, the, on the ground. For he comes and 
probably has far too many meetings to attend, far too many sermons to craft, far too many things to do in this stuffed agenda that he thinks to himself, I don't have time to get my hands dirty. Because after all, the Jewish rabbi understood that if he touched the blood of the dead corpse or the presumed dead corpse, then he would be declared unclean. He'd have to go through hours and hours of ritualistic washings. And who has time for that? And that would mess up his entire day. His whole morning would be spent in the bathtub. And who wants to do that? And so he thought to himself, you know what? Somebody else will come along. So he crossed the street, passed by on the other side. But Jesus said, a second fellow came by. This was a Jewish Levite. Now, once again, it seems like good news for the poor guy that's lying half dead in the middle of town. Because if a preacher won't stop, then certainly a choir member would stop, or a deacon would stop, or a church leader would stop. Certainly a Levite would stop. But the Levite, for whatever reason, and probably he had as many good reasons as the preacher, he thought to himself, I don't have time for this. It's not that he didn't see the man. Oh, he saw him. But he crossed the street and passed by on the other side. And then Jesus shocks the lawyer. Jesus says a Samaritan came by. Now the lawyer, who's always one or two questions ahead, because that's how he's trained, he understands, now wait a minute, there's no way this Samaritan's going to help a Jewish man. I mean, Jesus, you just stacked the odds against yourself. I don't know how you're going to get yourself out of this story, but you, you can't expect the Samaritan to help the Jew. Because you realize that Jews and Samaritans hated each other. It was an 800-year Hatfield and McCoy type of feud that had been going on between the Jews and Samaritans. Jews were raised to hate Samaritans. Samaritans were raised to hate Jews. And Jesus had the audacity to bring up the enemy, the, the, the one person furthest on the planet that would lend any mercy or any help in time of need. And Jesus shocks the expert. Jesus said there was a Samaritan who saw the man and took pity on him. That word pity is mercy. It's sympathy. It's compassion. He sees the man. He sees him in need. He goes over and bandages wounds. He places that bloody person on his own beast of burden. He directs his animal to go back uh, towards the city of Jerusalem. And there, the Samaritan rents a room for the night and he watches us, and he watches over this one in need. The next morning he wakes up and he says to the hotel manager, here are two silver coins. Uh, you watch this man until I return. You know I'm good for it. For when I come back, if you've incurred any other expense, you can put it on my tab. Jesus asked the expert lawyer, who acted like a neighbor? Now, if we were living in the days of the American Revolution and we were trying to contemporize the story that Jesus gives, what we would say would be that a redcoat came and helped a colonist. If we were living in the days of the Civil War, what we would say in order to contextualize the story is, is that a Yankee came down and helped a Confederate soldier. That's mind-boggling, isn't it? If we were living in the days of the 1960s, deep in the South, in the midst of civil rights movement, what we would say is that a white man came and helped a black man in need. 
or even today, what we would say if we were trying to contemporize the story is that a Muslim came and helped a Christian. Or a a pagan lesbian came and gave assistance to a believing heterosexual. This is mind-blowing. This is not what you expect to happen. This is amazing. And Jesus, Jesus says that it's the Samaritan who comes to the aid of this Jewish man. And he asks the expert lawyer, which one was a neighbor? And the expert cannot even say the word Samaritan. He simply says, the one who had mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise, and you'll live. Because your neighbor, the one who deserves your mercy, is anyone who has a need that you're in a position to meet. That's your neighbor. And mercy has a way of trumping racism. And mercy has a way of even breaking down religious boundaries. So, Jesus says, your neighbor, those you're supposed to help, it's anyone who has a need that you're in a position to meet. It seems that in the preaching of Jesus, he says, if you're unmerciful, that carries a high price tag. One day, Peter came and Asked Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Now, Peter knew that the rabbinical law taught that you had to forgive someone three times. And so Peter wanted to impress Jesus. So he comes up and he says, now, Jesus, I'm going to more than double what is the cultural norm of the rabbinical teaching. So, Jesus, uh, should I forgive my brother up to seven times? Now, Jesus, I know you're going to be impressed with that, my generosity of mercy, my great display of benevolence, so I'll go ahead and turn around so you can pat me on my back. Aren't you impressed that I'm going to forgive someone up to seven times? And Jesus responds, Peter, not seven times, but 77 times. Some translations say not seven times, but seven times 70. Now, what is the point of the master? Is Jesus telling us that we need to carry around a ledger where we log the offenses that someone has done against us? And when we get to number 488, 489, 490, we've got to forgive them. But when they offend us for the 491st time, we are off the hook and we don't have to show mercy anymore. No, most of us don't keep records that well. Most of us don't know the number of times someone has offended us. What Jesus is saying is that you better be merciful until you don't want to be merciful anymore. There is no limit to the mercy. Why? Because God's mercy towards us motivates mercy from us. So it seems that Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. There's a connectivity between the mercy that we have received as spiritual beggars to the mercy that we show unto others. When Jesus told Peter, you need to forgive, 
he uh, gave him another story. Once again, Jesus just speaks these off the cuff, and really as a preacher, it drives me crazy because Jesus is really, really good at this. Jesus said, uh, Peter, there was a there was a master who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. He called the first one in. And the servant owned the ma- owed the master 10,000 talents. A talent in those days was not an ability. A talent was a sum of money. It was a large sum of money. And so Jesus says that this one servant who comes into the master owes the master 10,000 talents. This is equivalent to millions of dollars. The only way somebody gets into this much debt is by gross mismanagement. It is probably something that is unethical. It is immoral. Uh, This man is probably a crook standing before his master. And the master says the only thing that the master can say. He says um, to his officer, uh, you need to apprehend this man sell him and his family into slavery. That way I can recoup some of my money. And the man falls on his knees and he begs for mercy. Please, sir, please, I know I'm caught, guilty as charged, but please don't sell me, don't sell my family. Please, please, can, can we work something out? Can I try to pay you back? And the master knows you owe me so much money, there's no way you can pay it back. But in this moment, this master has a soft heart and the master says, your debt is forgiven. How do you think this cat feels? He's had millions of dollars in debt, and now it's canceled. What does he do? What does he say? How does he react? I promise you he's doing more than you're doing right now. I mean, he is jumping up and down. Woo! Praise God! This debt has been erased. Oh, my mercy has been shown unto me. I promise you, he is getting up and getting excited. He is thrilled. And the text tells us that no sooner had he walked off the steps of the palace... That he found a man who was indebted to him a hundred denarii, which is about three months of wages. It's a debt, but it's a manageable debt. The servant goes and he grabs him by the shirt collar and he begins to choke him. And the one who just had the ginormous debt canceled says to the one who owes a manageable debt, you pay me back what you owe me. If you don't pay back, I'll throw you into prison. And that's exactly what he does. He throws him into debtor's prison. Now, whenever you show yourself as an idiot, you never do that in secret. Other people always see it. Have you noticed that? And in this story, the other servant saw how this guy acted toward his fellow servant. So they went back and told the master. And the master called for the first servant to come back in. And he said, you wicked servant. What did you just do? Did I not cancel 10,000 talents of debt in your life simply because you asked for it? Was I not merciful to you simply because you begged me to be merciful? Who do you think you are to then go out and not show the same level of mercy towards other individuals? And he said, apprehend him, torture him until he pays back his debt. The master knows there's no way this man can pay back his debt. And Jesus says to Peter, 
who had began by asking the question, how often should I forgive? Jesus says to him, this is how you, this is how God will act towards you unless you are merciful towards others. Because in the teaching of Jesus, it seems pretty abundantly clear that God's mercy towards us motivates mercy from us. So this morning I wonder, is there ever a time when merciful people don't have to act with mercy? Is there ever a time when it's okay for merciful people to be unmerciful? I guess it's all in how you define it. For example, let me give you a few scenarios. Is it a lack of mercy if you refuse to roll down your window and give money to the homeless man who's always located on the left side of the exit ramp as you get off the interstate? Is it a lack of mercy if parents spank their children because of defiant disobedience? Is it a lack of mercy if a government constructs laws that carry a stiff penalty if you break them? Is it a lack of mercy if judges rule in cases enforcing the full extent of the law in clear cases of guilt? Is it unmerciful if an employer dismisses an employee even though that employee has a family of five to feed? Is it unmerciful if the church confronts people of sin and calls for contrite confession? Is that unmerciful? My answer to all those scenarios is a resounding no. That's not unmerciful. It's not unmerciful for you to not give money to the homeless guy on the left side of the exit ramp when you get off the interstate. It's not a sin if you do. It's not a sin if you don't. Because there are a lot of people that would say, you know, I'll give money to the church and through the benevolence ministry of the church, then we help the poor. And it's not a sin if a parent spanks junior. I mean, my father was probably like some of your dads. He, he not only affirmed corporal punishment, but I think on some days he was an advocate of capital punishment. <laughs> it's not unmerciful for a government to construct laws to protect the innocent and to punish the perpetrator. It's not unmerciful for a judge to rule in cases of clear guilt for the full extent of the law. It's not unmerciful for an employer to dismiss an employee if that employee has done something that demands and deserves um, uh, dismissal. It is not unmerciful for the church to confront sin in the lives of the people and call them on the carpet and call them to contrite confession. That is not unmerciful. But if you're, if you're in a wrestling match right now good because John Piper is very helpful in this moment when he says there ought to be a wrestling match in the believer when it comes to the proper mingling of mercy and justice he says the best advice I can give you is just live close to Jesus the best thing I can tell you 
is try to live close to Jesus. Because Jesus has something to say about how we handle our money. And Jesus has something to say about how we discipline our children. And Jesus has something to say about how governments should be set up. And Jesus has something to say about being a judge who mingles mercy and justice all at the same time. And Jesus has something to say about employer-employee practices. And Jesus has something to say about sin in the camp that must be eradicated. So if you wrestle in the difficulty of showing mercy and showing justice at the same time, and how does that happen? If you wrestle with that, good. Because there should be a mingling between mercy and justice. There should be a wrestling match. And like John Piper, the best advice I can give you is just live close to Jesus. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. That statement does not mean that if you're merciful to other people, those people will be merciful to you. No, you can be nice to some people, you can be kind, you can be benevolent, you can be sympathetic, you can be compassionate, you can show pity, and that person will never reciprocate that back to you. But once again, you don't act for what you're going to receive. You don't give in an effort to get something from somebody else. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy by God. Remember, for God's mercy towards us motivates mercy from us. So we know that God has been merciful to us. So we must show mercy to others, regardless of whether or not that mercy is reciprocated unto us. We're not acting in such a way so that other people can respond and pay us back or reciprocate us back to us. No, we're acting out of the obligation and the adoration of God's mercy towards us. So this morning, I've got to tell you that I understand what it is to have one single act of magnificent mercy that changes a man's life for eternity. I know what that's like. Because like Jean Valjean, I am a criminal. I am a criminal, guilty as charged. I have broken the law of God. I've broken the word of God and the will of God. This is not just preacher talk. I'm not just false piety that's going on here. This is sincere. I am a criminal in the sight of God. I was born a sinner and I will die a sinner. I'm as sinful from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. I'm as selfish as the next guy. But there's been one single act of magnificent mercy that has changed the course of my life forever. You see, one day I learned that Jesus went to Calvary. And that Jesus, the innocent one, became guilty so that we who are guilty might be declared innocent in God's sight. I realized that Jesus, who is the author of salvation, stood in the place of condemnation for that those of us who stand in condemnation may be able to enjoy the salvation of God. And I realized that Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. Sin and left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. I realized that for years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died at Calvary. And mercy there was great and grace was 
free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. I realized that this one single act of magnificent mercy has changed my life both now and forevermore. I may not be all that I ought to be, but praise God, I'm not what I used to be. I am a saved sinner. I am one who is justified in the sight of God. I am one who's been sanctified by the blood of Christ. I am one who's going to be glorified in the presence of the Lord. And all of it is because of one single act of magnificent mercy, and it changes the course of everything for all of eternity because God's mercy towards us motivates mercy from us. So one day there was a blind man kneeling on the side of the road. And he heard the commotion. And he asked, who is this coming by? And someone told him, it is Jesus of Nazareth. And the blind man shouted, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those around him tried to quiet him down. Don't bother the rabbi. He's got a place to go. He's got people to see. He's going from point A to point B. You just keep quiet. And the blind man said, I'm blind. I need to say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The text says that he shouted it louder and louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. He came back and he said, son, what do you want? And he said, I want to see. And Jesus said, by faith, you're healed. My friends, do you need sovereign sympathy in your life? My friends, do you need to show some mercy towards others? I want you to know that the Savior is passing by. You need help in your home? The Savior is passing by. You need help with your marriage? The Savior is passing by. You need meaning in life? The Savior is passing by. You need forgiveness of sin? The Savior is passing by. You need a home in heaven? The Savior is passing by. All you have to do is say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. You ask and he will supply. So this morning, may you and I be men and women, boys and girls, who notice that Jesus is passing by and just say, Jesus, son of David, please have mercy on me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sovereign sympathy that you've displayed towards us. And Lord, your mercy towards us motivates mercy from us. So on this day, we pray that you not only show us mercy, but you show us how to display mercy towards others. May your altar be full. May people come to a saving knowledge of Christ. May families come and join this church. Oh Lord, have mercy on us. Jesus son of David. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.